One. The train whistle sounds still far away, the sustained hollow note that haunts us even now, both measuring and overcoming distance. In town, people start moving toward the station, some on business, some just to see the spectacle. It is a spectacle. Down the curve of tracks, the huge steam engine thunders in, spewing black smoke and giving off screeches of brakes, cleaving irresistibly through neighborhoods and across streets, terrifying pigeons and carriage horses, bringing goods and news and money, possibilities and dreams. It stops. People climb on and off. Freight and mailbags move on and off in a great bustle of importance. While the huge brawling engine steams and grumbles in the station, all these people inhabit a much broader world, intimately connected to the ends of the earth. Even if they just stand and watch, their lives are much bigger for the train. And much scarier. It's 1877, and the world is crazy. And much of that also seems the fault of the railroad. The year before, the United States had celebrated the centennial of its birth with a showcase fair in Philadelphia. Millions of people swarmed through this ambitious, self-congratulatory exhibition, viewing the new wonders of American technology, the sewing machine, the typewriter, the telephone, an internal combustion engine that actually worked, a steam elevator, triumphs of ingenuity that promised to transform people's lives. The observers walking by already knew, though, that these triumphs of ingenuity could transform their lives very badly, and while the country celebrated its 100th birthday, the men and women gazing in awe at the machines had every right to wonder if it could last too many years more. Three years before the centennial, the collapse of a single bank precipitated the crisis of the 1870s, which is sometimes described as a depression but was really much worse. Depressions, as the name suggests, are troughs in the economic wave when production falls off and gross national product shrinks. With fiscal prudence, they tend to correct themselves. In the last half of the 19th century, American economic production was not depressed. It was roaring. GNP continually grew, and not by modest percentages. By the end of the century, the wealth of the country would be eight times what it had been 50 years before. Yet the workers at the center of the economy could not feed their families, and bands of starving, jobless men roamed the countryside. The economy was broken. Abrupt industrialization, imported wholesale from England and therefore occurring in a single generation rather than building across centuries, had developed capital resources and built infrastructure, but it had destroyed the work that supported huge numbers of people. The machines had stolen their jobs. The machines, though, were more efficient, and increased production meant that prices were falling steadily. With machines driving more people into the employment lines, Wages were falling even faster. Massive immigration further glutted the labor market. A railroad brakeman made $40 a month if he worked full-time. A blacksmith or coal miner made less, 
a schoolteacher much less. Meanwhile, a slavish, not to say selfish, managerial devotion to returns on capital was making a lucky handful of men at the top obscenely rich. Nonetheless, the downward slide of the economy was taking a lot of people with it, including even some of these rich men. In the centennial year, even as the Great Exhibition trumpeted the superiority of the American way, banks were still failing and railroads were still going bankrupt. The plight of the working men and their families, living in shacks beside the railroad, gathering spilt coal to heat their homes, enslaved to company stores, had ignited several outbreaks of brutal labor violence, put down just as brutally. Millions of people had no work at all. Washington was no help. The Grant administration was ending in a heap of scandals. And in the fall of the centennial year, the presidential election touched off the astonishing...